If you have a Bible, open to the Gospel of Luke. If you don't have a Bible, we put one there on the table there for you. And uh, Luke is in the New Testament. And uh, if you don't have a Bible or own a Bible at all, there's an app, uh, Uversion app, just called the Bible app, and you can, uh, you can grab that, and it's really easy uh, to use on your phone there. We're going to look at the, the, the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 1 tonight. So we're, we're in this season in the church calendar called Advent, and Advent uh, talks about the, this, this period of arrival after this really long period of waiting for the church. So in the history of the church, there was this 400 years of silence where God, who had been communicating through prophets and um, different signs and ways to his people, there was this long silence. And so generations had grown up not knowing who God was, not knowing the stories that we know now from the, having the Old Testament. Uh, and, and now in Advent kind of signifies this arrival of something new, something beautiful, something great. And I, Advent's one of the seasons that I really love the most um, because without Advent, there isn't the life of Jesus. Without Advent, there isn't the cross of Christ. Without Advent, there isn't the resurrection. Advent, uh, very simply, but yet in a very extremely profound way, reminds us that God is with us. And I don't know if that means anything to you, um, but God, it, God's with us. So what, what we just sang, and the one that we just sang too, that's all real. It's all real. God, God's, God's with us. And so we want to look at that and be reminded of that tonight. And that we're going to look at the, at the birth of Jesus and what that means for us. And we're going to look through the lens of a, of a character named Mary out of uh, Luke chapter 1. Let me pray for us. And, uh, and then we'll just ask God to help us through this tonight as we open his word. Father, I love you. And uh, Jesus, I, I, everything we've sung about you tonight is 100% true. And God, I, I celebrate that. I lift my hands to that. I lift my voice to that. God, I lay my life underneath um, the truth of who you are. Um, God, your, your lordship, your sovereign care, your plan, and your love, and your mercy, and your grace. And Father, now as we open your word to us, God, I, I pray for, for your help. Holy Spirit, would you come and move, and would you fill this time and fill this place and flood our hearts and flood our minds with the truth of who you are. God, would you remove distractions? Would you cut through just the, the nonsense that's in our head, even right now, the things that are distracting us, the, maybe the lies of the accuser? That are, in our, that are in our minds, that feel like they're in our ears right now. Father, would you silence all of those things so that you would be heard and seen and experienced clearly and brilliantly and as beautiful as you are. Jesus, I love you. I ask these things in your name for your glory and for your fame. Amen. Um, the character of Mary is very interesting to me. I was raised in a tradition um, where Mary was really elevated to a, a, a place that I don't necessarily believe is the proper place for Mary. But so kind of coming out of that, you can get a little gun shy of who Mary is. But Mary is very interesting to me. In the scripture, we see her. She's this, the, this willing heroine of the ultimate and true fairy tale. She's this commoner who's adopted and grafted into the royal family. She's poor, uh, yet chosen. She's uh, humble, yet favored. She's the subject of great suffering and the most tragic of losses that you can imagine as a parent. 
and yet, and she's the witness to the greatest triumph in all of human history. She was the first Christ carrier, her body broken, sinful, flawed. Um, she carried the Lord into our world, and out of her body was birthed peace and joy and love embodied uh, was carried in the body of, of Mary. And we pick up her story in Luke chapter 1. You should be there um, already. Luke chapter 1, and I'll start in verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, and we'll talk about her in just a second, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. So we have Mary. She's engaged to this guy, Joseph. Um, the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Not a bad way to start your day. But Mary, verse 29, is greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, which angels always have to say when they just show up out of nowhere to humans. They always have to say, don't be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. So Mary, most scholars think she's somewhere between 13 to 17 years old. She's this girl from Nazareth. And, and Luke has to tell us where Nazareth is is. It's like sometimes when I'll travel, I'll go to different places, and if I tell somebody I'm from Gilbert, Arizona, they're not quite sure where Gilbert is, so I'll say, well, it's Phoenix. I'll just say, I'll just kind of cut through the messengers like, yeah, I'm from Phoenix. They don't know, so they're never going to come visit me, so it doesn't matter. So I just say, yeah, I'm from Phoenix. But this is be like, if, if you're from Phoenix and someone's like, oh yeah, she's from like Black Canyon City. Anybody know where Black Canyon City is, right? So if you're headed way north, you kind of see Black Canyon City. Hopefully no one here is from Black Canyon City. It's going to be a long ride home for you. But, um, but Luke, so Nazareth is just like such a backwater place. He has to tell the readers where this place actually is. So she's this poor Middle Eastern young girl. We know she's poor um, because in the scriptures, Joseph and Mary, when they go to the temple to offer sacrifice, they offer pigeons, which was the lowest acceptable sacrifice that people could give. So they're of the, she's of the lowest economic class that there, that there is. And it's amazing. God chooses to come into our world through what we would now call lower class. If you, if you knew Mary today, if you knew her story today, you'd say, oh, yeah, that Mary, she's, she's probably on some kind of welfare or, or she's, up, she's of the lower class. And, and, and God chooses to tell and work out the greatest news in all of human history presented to and through this young, poor girl. And, and it's important for us um, to just look at Mary. And, and, and hopefully this Christmas season, as you're thinking about uh, the birth of Christ and you're thinking about this story, it doesn't just become something that you've heard a million times or maybe you, you've kind of watched the cartoon version of this movie or you remember like the stories or it's in a car or something, but you actually put yourself into the story using your imagination of what it must have been like or what it was like. There's this homeless mother giving birth to the king of kings in a stable, this refugee mother who's been fleeing Egypt, it reminds us of a truth that we forget often. And the truth is that sometimes as the American church, we're really enamored with money and prestige and success in a way that it seems Jesus is really not enamored with. Because a lot of times in our thinking, 
we think, well, okay, well, if you've got money, you must have made some really good decisions to get to that position in life. If, if you're in a position of power, if you have a, a, a level of prestige, if there's been some success, if, if you've got some notoriety to you, then you really must have been really wise in your decisions. You must have really made all the right choices to get to that place. And if you don't, if you're not there, then you must not have worked very hard. You must not have tried. But the Christmas story says to me that God cares very little for what we as a society think is so important and so significant. Things like status and experience and expertise, fame and fortune, all the things that are very popular. It seems like God's not as caught up with that as we are. And Mary's song, um, if, you, if you read through that, she tells us that God, he has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. Mary's son James would later tell us uh, that favoritism has no place in the kingdom of God. James says, you maybe you remember this, when you're in a gathering like this and the person who's dressed kind of shabby, you make them sit kind of in the back and off to the corner. But the person who comes in in the nice clothes and the fine clothes and all the rings and the jewelry, you let them sit right up front. And James says, that's not the way that it is in the kingdom of God. In 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, he writes that God delights to make himself and his power known and perfected in weakness and in the insignificant things. And I think a lot of times, and sometimes what what I'm afraid of for for the church and for your generation, your generation coming up through the church, is is we can care more about how we present ourselves to the world. We can think more and spend more time uh, kind of planning or thinking or scheming or, 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 or just giving energy to how we present ourselves to the world than we care for those that the world presents to us. We're, we're so consumed with how we're going to present ourselves that we're missing out on who the world's presenting to us to love. We care so much about how we are going to be loved and accepted that we don't have any time, energy, or resources left over to actually love, accept, serve, care for those that are presented to us. So we need to be careful about how we present worldly things as the most significant things because it seems like they're of little significance to God. The gospel in Mary's story, I'm going to just kind of cut to the chase with why we're looking at Mary's story is this, is that Mary, Mary's a sinner, Mary's poor, but God is pouring out grace on and through, on her through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 31, and this is how he's doing it. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdoms will never end. Verse 30, verse, 30, uh, verse 34, how will this be, Mary asked, since I am a virgin? Now, it's a very good question, one, <laughs> uh, but two, is what Mary's doing there, is she, is she doubting God? I mean, this angel shows up, that's a pretty powerful presentation, right? Is she, is she doubting God? Kind of. I mean, she says, look, I'm a virgin, and I'm, 
I just passed biology class, but virgins generally do not have babies. So how, how can this be? If you remember the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, those are the parents of John the Baptist, they had, Zechariah had a very similar kind of doubt. Um, Gabriel told Zechariah, same Gabriel, that's like his job, he goes to tell people that they're pregnant. Gabriel um, told Zechariah, he said, look, you and your wife, you're going to have a son. Now the problem, of course, was that they're both octogenarians, and Zechariah had said, how can this be true? Because I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. So when you get married, if you want to tell people your wife is old, you just say, she's advanced in years. That's what he says. He says, she's advanced in years, and I'm an old man, and Elizabeth was barren. So how can this be? So Zechariah asked that question, and Gabriel makes him mute for nine months. But yet, Mary is allowed to, to ask that question. How can this be? Let's keep reading. Verse 35. Um, the angel says, he says, uh, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she, who was said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. If you ever highlight or like underline or mark up your Bible, that's verse 37 is an amazing, amazing verse to, uh, to underline. No word from God will ever fail. So it's very interesting that Mary gets an explanation, Zechariah gets put on mute, um, and I think it's because there's two kinds of doubts. There's a, there's a bad doubt and there's a good doubt, simply. There's a kind of doubt that, that grows out of this disbelief. And it's proud and it's defiant and it has this kind of lace of bitterness with it. And if you are, are looking back on Zechariah and Elizabeth's story, which if you come to church this Sunday, I'm actually going to preach on it. So maybe that's why you won't come here this Sunday, but uh, I'll be here. So uh, if, if you look back at the story, there's this kind of lace of bitterness that's in it. Because for them, that was, that was all their hopes and dreams, to have a child. And Elizabeth's barren, and Zechariah lives his whole life serving the Lord. Zechariah's not a bad guy at all. He serves the Lord in the temple. But yet, God does not give them the thing that they so desperately dreamed of their whole life. I mean, Britney Spears can have babies, and Zechariah doesn't get one, right? What in the world's up with that? Sorry, Brittany. Um, is, does anyone even know who Britney Spears is anymore? I just, it just dawned on me. She's like a big deal to me. I don't, I don't know if anybody even knows who she, who she is. Okay, well, Google her. No, don't Google her. That's, that'd, be, that'd be bad. Anyway, bottom line. Bottom line is, Zechariah has this kind of bad doubt. It's this bitter doubt. But Mary... Mary has this doubt that really grows out of this humble, like, wonder. So she's 13, 14, 15-year-old kid. And she stares up at this angel with awe. And she's like, how? How can, how can this be? Overwhelmed with the wonder of God's goodness and favor on her. It, it's, it's a doubt that says, God, I don't understand but I'm ready to learn. There's a doubt that says, God, there's no way. 
there's no way you can do this. There's no way you can come through. There's no way that you can provide. There's no way you can work a miracle in my life. And there's another doubt, another doubt that says, God, I don't get it. I don't understand. But I submit to it, and I'm ready to follow you wherever it is that you're taking me. There's this author named Tim Keller, and he says, it's the difference between dishonest doubt and honest doubt. He says, dishonest doubt is proud and lazy. It responds to God's revelation by saying that's impossible or that's just silly and then walks away. Dishonest doubt is closed-minded. It refuses to consider the possibility where, where purposes and power are far beyond its own comprehension. But by contrast, honest doubts, he says, are humble because they lead you to ask genuine questions, not just put up a defiant wall. And when you ask a real question, it puts you in a position of humility and vulnerability. Honest doubts are open to belief. Meaning, God, I don't quite understand it. I can't see it but I'm open to following you through it. And what, what, if, what if God gives you an answer to whatever it is that you're wrestling with, struggling with, praying for, dreaming about, so desperately want in your life? And, and, and what if that answer contradicts uh, or, or shatters your, your categories or demands things from you that you feel like you're not ready to give? You see, if you're really asking from God, from humble doubt, from, from insight into who he is and what he does, he might just give it to you. Here's what's really awesome to me about this part of the story. In, in answer to Mary's honest, humble doubt, the angel gives her one of the greatest faith-building statements in all of the Bible. He says, in, in the NIV, it says, no word from God will ever fail. In, in the ESV, he says, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. And, and, and many of you, you, you have doubts like, like God, okay, what, what are you doing? Or God, why would you allow? Or why is this scenario kind of playing out in my life? Why is this circumstance? And the question is, are your doubts humble? Are your doubts honest? Or are your doubts dishonest? Look at verse 38. Um. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. And then um, in the next kind of following verses, Mary composes the song. She rejoices in the promises that God had made for her. We'll pick it up in verse uh, 46. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he's been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble, and he has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. So using her example, here's what I want to talk about just briefly. How do we see the gospel in Mary's story? First, we see that the gospel comes to the world through grace, the favor of God. The, the angel started his command to Mary to, to not fear and announcing to her that she had the favor of God. It's important because it's key to everything else. Be, because you got to, again, use your imagination. Put yourself in Mary's situation, okay? She's just been told that she's going to be pregnant. She's not married, right? 
So she has no husband at this point. She's engaged, but she's not married. So she's just been told that she's going to be pregnant. And in this culture with no husband, um, it's not just frowned upon, right? It's not like, oh, that was a bad decision to get pregnant when you're not married. It's punishable by death. So the angel shows up, and if what he's saying is true, he just gave Mary a death sentence. He just put her under the penalty of death. That was the law. That was the law that Mary was under. The man she loves, Joseph, is probably not going to understand the situation and is most likely going to leave her. I mean, I don't know if, if girls, if you're in here, ladies, if you're in here, and you're dating someone and you're like, by the way, I'm pregnant. Um, no, it's not yours. Uh, no, it's not anybody else's. It's the Lord's. It's kind of a tough sell right there, right? So that's most likely what's going to happen to this young teenager. She's already poor. She's already poor. She's on the lowest economic scale. Death sentence hanging over her. Joseph's going to leave. And if he rejects her, then she'll be absolutely destitute, meaning homeless. No source of income. She doesn't have a job at like the Circle K or Target, right? So she'll probably have to beg. So pregnant teenager on the streets of Nazareth, begging for food, begging for money, begging for shelter. And, and, and if you think, okay, if I really have the favor of God, could this not have happened like maybe after the wedding? Could it not have happened like at a different time, a different place? Or maybe you're like, hey, favor of God, you're going to have uh, the Lord. And also here's a great place for you to live with a nursery. And here's like the newest stroller in all of Judea, right? So like, but none of those things, none of those provisions. So it doesn't really feel like the favor of God on her life. But yet, Despite her ruined reputation, despite her most important relationship falling apart, despite her financial issues, the scripture tells us that she rejoices in the favor of God because a son is being born to her. A son, the angel says, whose name you will call Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So as a little sidebar here, it could be Mary's able to rejoice because she gets something that all of us need to get. And she gets this. She knows her main problem is not going to be finances. It's not going to be a reputation. It's not going to be like the dream of the, of the perfect wedding and the perfect family and the perfect you know, house and, and the perfect whatever. She realizes that her biggest problem, her main problem, is a severed relationship with God. And she can rejoice in the favor of God because Jesus is coming to restore that. Her biggest problem is that she's not put back together with God. And she's forever, eternally separated from him unless there is a miracle. And the angel says, hey, miracle is here and he's inside you and Mary says favor of God I rejoice in that what we need to learn is that for some of us for most of us in the room our biggest issue is a severed relationship with God 
And we come in here and we're thinking, no, man, it's, no, you don't understand. It's, it's this issue at work or it's this failed relationship or it's these questions I just have about my future or it's this addiction or it's this depression or it's this, this doubt or it's this whatever. It's this, this, this. And I think what we're learning from Mary here is that our biggest problem, our biggest problem as humans is a severed relationship from God. And, and, and the fact that her pregnancy essentially puts her under a curse of death is supposed to be a picture for us. Jesus was born to a woman under the curse of death, and we, the entire human race, are under the curse of death, and Jesus was born to us and would grow up to take that curse in our place. And the son, this son, this angel says, he will not only save his people from their sons, but he will rule from the throne of David, which to the Jews, David's throne symbolized the restoration of worldwide peace and blessing, this condition that we call shalom, this restoration of all things, the reversal of of pain. The the prophet Joel says, I will restore what the swarming locusts have eaten. Not just forgive, I will restore. Isaiah chapter 60, the prophet says, they will bring back your sons and daughters from afar. Reputations that have been ruined or destroyed will be repaired. Wrongs will be made right. We read our, our, our kids this, this Jesus storybook Bible, and when it's talking about this condition of shalom, when it's talking about what the world will, will be in one, one day, it says that everything sad will come untrue. And I love that phrase. It's bad grammar, but it's like excellent theology because what it's saying is is that it, it, it doesn't mean that we'll forget everything that happened it just means that the feeling of loss and the feeling of permanent damage which we all have in our lives everybody in this room you've lived long enough to have a regret or two and they are things where you wish you're like I, if I could do anything to just erase those things if I could erase them from ever happening that would be brilliant but if I could just erase them from my mind, that would be great. And what the scripture is telling us is that whatever feeling of damage or loss that you have about that thing, um, that will be removed. And what we're going to see is that God's actually going to use those things for our ultimate good. And because Mary went through these things, so she has this unjust death sentence, this hardship that seems impossible, she got to understand Jesus more by going through what he went through and by seeing that really nothing was impossible with him. And, and, and I know that for many of us, the, the Christmas season is not really a time where we want to celebrate because it reminds us or it represents a time for us where we will feel loss or pain or disappointment and we, we feel it maybe more acutely. But for those of us whose hope is in Jesus, Christmas is a reminder that our hope is the expectation of future blessings and the confidence that the best is yet to come because Jesus is a reminder to us that nothing is impossible with God. And as Christians, we have to embrace the favor of God that's given to us in Christ. And that favor is this, that God through Jesus has restored your relationship with him. And it has promised you the restoration of all things and is working all things for your ultimate good. Now, Mary is not great in this passage because she's sinless. Marriage is great because she is a sinner who found favor with God. And this grace is very disruptive. Now, again, put yourself in Mary's shoes. Imagine making this announcement to her family. 
just got engaged. She now has to tell them, by the way, I'm pregnant, right? And they're like, oh, we knew Joseph was a bad dude. No, it's not his. It's the Lord's. <laughs> okay, Mary's crazy, right? It's, this, is, this is not an easy word for Mary. It's terrible. Terrible in that it's frightening. And, and grace can be extremely frightening. Um, John Piper, who's, a, who's an author, he says this, the highest, most precious gifts of God do not always come to us in attractive colors. Grace can perplex. Grace can frighten. The grace of healing might have the face of chemotherapy. The grace of patience might have the face of pain. The grace of humility might have the face of defeat. And we need to learn from Mary not to lash out at God for the frightening forms of grace. God's favor isn't always easy. Sometimes, as we see with Mary, it includes a lot of difficulties. But it's always good because it always brings you to the promises and the presence of Jesus. And in Mary's story, we see that the gospel comes to the world by the favor of God, by this grace. And we also see in Mary's story that the gospel is received in faith or in, in confidence. In, in verse 38, she, she says this. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And that is to be our response to what the Lord says to us. God, I'm yours. Let it be done to according to me. Whatever it is that you say, whatever it is that you say in your word about me, let that be done. Whatever obedience you're calling me to, whatever suffering you're calling me to, whatever sacrifice you're calling me to, whatever life of lived out love you're calling to, let it be with me. Let it be with me. If you're calling me to go to the people that nobody else wants to go to, let it be with me. If you're calling me to give what's painful to give, let it be with me. If you're calling me to serve where I don't really want to serve, let it be that with me. If you're calling me to be humble where I know I'm right, let it be with me. Let me be humble. And so that's the question to you. What's the frightening work of grace that God's doing in your life right now? Where, where's the place, of, uh, the place of pain, the place of suffering, the place of questioning, the place of disappointment, the place of wondering, okay, what in the world am I going to do? That's actually a place of grace that God has you in in your life right now. And how are you responding to it? Are you responding like, like Mary? God, okay, I just want to be obedient to whatever you're going to do, whatever you're going to take me through in this moment. Because verse 37 is the, is the way that we answer those scenarios. The way that we meet those terrible, frightening things in our life. God, nothing is impossible with you. Your word never fails. God's going to do a work of grace in your, in your life. And I think what we learn from Mary is it's okay to ask questions. But it's okay to ask questions where we're staring and wondering, like, God, I know you're so much bigger than this terrible thing that's happening to me right now. God, I know you're so much bigger than this frightening thing that I have questions about in my life right now. And I don't know how it's going to work out, but God, I know that you're for me, and I know that you're working all things for my greatest good. So you do with me as you, as you please. What promises of God are you having trouble believing? Is it the promise of Psalm 23, 6, where he says, Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Is it the promise that we find in Isaiah 43, 2, When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. 
When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Are you having difficulty believing the promise of Romans 8, 28? We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to a purpose. Are you having trouble believing Jeremiah 29, 13? that says, God, you will seek me and, when, and, and find me when you, when you seek me with all your heart. Are you having promise? Are you having problem believing Romans eight thirty five? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine, or nakedness or danger or sword? Are you having problems believing Romans eight thirty two, that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him, graciously give us all things? Paul says, he that did not spare his own son. I've got a five-year-old boy. Do you know how much I would have to love someone to offer my son up for execution? That person does not exist on planet Earth, by the way. There is not a person where I would say, here is my son. Murder him so that you can go free. I don't care. There's not one person that I care about enough to where I would offer up my son. And the scripture tells us that we are that person for the father. And he says, he who did not withhold his son, his precious son, how will he not graciously also give us all things that we need? Do you believe that? Is this a, a, this is a room full of people that believe that? That's amazing. That's great. If we did, if we did, we'd be turning the world upside down for the fame of Jesus. Because we would we would ask for the kinds of things that the world needs the most. What we learn from Mary is that we can stare into our doubts. We can stare into the face of God. We can realize his size and the greatness of his love, and we can ask our questions. We see that the gospel of Jesus comes into the world by, the, by grace, by the favor of God. It's received in faith by saying, God, do whatever it is that you want to do in my life. Um, and we see that it demands a life that's surrendered. The, the angel, he, he brings really good news to Mary, but he does add some things to it. There's some contingencies on it. Like, for example, he says, look, um, you're going to have a son, but here's his name. I mean, when you have a kid, that's kind of like one of the best parts of having a kid. You get to, like, read through the books and go through the Internet search and whatever and, like, figure out, like, what do I want to name my kids? Oh, Talon. That's a cool name. I'll name him Talon, right? So, low-key, we almost named our kid Talon. Um, we did not. My wife did. But it's not Talon. <laughs> He could never live up to that. He's my son. Like, let's get, get real. Um, but the angel says, no, no, no. I'm calling the shots on, on this one. I'm calling the shots on who this is going to be. And, and, and it's a picture for us because if you're going to have the blessing of Jesus in your life, then we have to surrender fully and let God call the shots, even in our most intimate relationships and in our deepest dreams. Mary's response in verse, in verse 38 is really significant. I mean, we can just kind of glance over that because we've heard this story a thousand times. But she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. 
let it be to me according to your word. She takes the posture of a servant here. Now, again, use your imagination. Put yourself in Mary's position. This word comes to you. Are you receiving it like that? Do you not have any kind of pushback? We're like, okay, I can do this, but I'm going to need some things. Or I can do this, but I'm going to need some additional promises. I'm going to need some additional help. Mary just says, no, it's full surrender. It's, it's full surrender. And a lot of times when, when God's promises come to us and God's favor comes to us and God's word comes to us, we, we don't accept it the way Mary accepts it here. We, we try to bend it around our life rather than having our life bend around the word of God. We say, okay, God, well, our, our finances will work this way if you just allow me to be kind of flexible with it, if I can just kind of bend it around my world and my way. My sexuality can work if I can just kind of bend it a certain way. My relationships, my dreams, my hopes, my vocation, all these things, they'll work if you just let me kind of bend it and mold it to the way that works best for me. And God says, no, 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 no. You're clay. I'm a potter. I'm the one who does the molding. I'm the one who does the forming and the shaping and the bending. I'm the one who makes beautiful things. I'm, I'm the one that you submit to. In, in, in Luke chapter 2, at the end of her story, it says that Mary treasured up all these things. She pondered them in, in her heart. Um, and for us, that's kind of like the, the big takeaway or what do we do with all of these things? We allow what is true about God um, to shape our thinking, to shape our thinking and to shape our hearts and to shape our attitudes, which ultimately shapes our behavior. And, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he says it this way, he says, who among us will celebrate Chris, Christmas correctly? Whoever finally lays down all power, all honor, all reputation, all vanity, all arrogance, all individualism beside the manger, whoever remains lowly and lets God alone be high, that is the person who celebrates Christmas correctly. And we see that in Mary's prayer. I'm your servant. Let it be me. Let it be to me according to your word. For the Christian, um, the, the Christmas story gives us something to do. It's, it's, a, it's a messy story. It's a, it's a story of alienation. It's a story of political tyranny. It's a story of homelessness. It's a story of working class people and pagans and angels. In this story, there's magi who are like these weird magician, astrologer people. Um, they're some of the first people that show up and call Jesus king, which might make some of us uncomfortable, but Jesus doesn't seem to be uncomfortable with strangers and people who are strange. There's weird people who show up, and they're part of the story, and Jesus seems totally cool with that. Um, the wise men there, the magi, were, they were most likely not kings. There is a king in the story. Um, it's Herod, um, and Herod's brutal. He's a king who slaughters hundreds of babies in an attempt to kill Jesus. A lot of times we kind of skip that part of the story. It doesn't really create the warm fuzzies that we want to have at Christmas, um, but you know, we, we talk about trying to keep Christ in Christmas, but the only way to keep Christ in Christmas is if we keep Herod in there too because that's the world that Jesus chose to enter. 
He chose to enter our broken, messed up world and our broken, messed up lives. And the, the kind of Christmas that Christ seems to want to be in um, is the one that includes the poor Middle Eastern peasant girl, the one that seems to include these outcast shepherds, these weird fortune tellers, and this corrupt politician who's responsible for a massacre. And our world is still messed up, our world is still hurting, and we're still messed up, and we're still hurting, which is ultimately why we keep Christ in Christmas. This Christmas is, um, it's, it's, a, it's a labor and delivery story. Birthing is messy and dangerous and violent, and if you want to hear me talk about that, you got to listen to other podcasts. <laughs> um, but in this young girl's waiting, and in her heaviness with expectation, Mary invites us in this Advent season to wait and to labor and to carry the heaviness and to look and to hope and, and to wait longer, reminding us that we are empowered and overshadowed by the Holy Spirit to be a Christ carrier because the world needs Christ carriers. World need, the world needs Christ carriers like Mary, commoners adopted and grafted into the royal family, poor yet chosen, humble yet favored, the subjects of sufferings and trials, the witnesses to the greatest triumph ever known. Christ carriers like you and me who are taking Jesus into our broken bodies to the most broken places and broken people in our world. And through Mary's story, we hear God say to us, greetings, you are highly favored and I am with you. And when all you seem to hear in life, especially during this season, is there's, there's no room, there's no room, there's no room. Know that God has made room for you. And I don't know why um, there are still Herods in the world, but we wait and we carry Christ to the most unlikely places, to the most unlikely people, heavy and expectant with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Mary's story, and God, it's one thing to, um, to hear the story like we've heard it so many times, and one thing to acknowledge that, yes, um, Mary did the right thing when she says, here I am, Lord, and I'm your servant, and, and do with me as you please. It's, God, it's, it's one thing to hear that and to nod our heads in this room. God, it's a whole other thing. I know it when you've put us in particular places, God, that are just, quite frankly, frightening. And God, they are places that don't look like uh, the way we had planned our life to go. God, where we have, um, we're engaged, we've got a, a future in front of us. And God, there seems to just be this collision that happens that totally changes the course of our life. And God, I know there's people in this room that have experienced something like that. And so, Father, I pray tonight, Spirit, I pray tonight that you would speak to them knowing, God, that, that you are with them. And, God, that your plans for them are for their good, not for their destruction. But, God, the means by which you take us so often, God, when we look at it up close, it just doesn't make any sense. God, it doesn't look at all the way that we want things to go. But, God, you're good and you're good to us. And, God, your plan is perfect. And your love is perfect for us, God. And your strength is perfected in our weakness. So, 
Father, these are things we've heard, things we know. God, I pray, I pray, God, that we would know them deeply in our bones. And so, God, would you apply them to our hearts and to our lives. We sing now, God, in response to your goodness. And, God, we sing ourselves into submission of who you are. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I'm sorry. Too cold at a bad time. And every time it's probably going to be a bad time.